Good morning, church. We're going to do scripture reading now. Uh, the passage this week is Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 24. There are Bibles in the pew in front of you. If you'd like to use those, you can find this passage on page 1311. Right, Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 24. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals, my sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the high places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel and in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. As for you, my flock, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away. 
I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Amen. Thank you, Becca. Morning. For those of you who may not uh, worship with us regularly, my name is Devin. I'm one of the pastors here at High Point. It's great to see you all today. Uh, is anyone else going to miss John? Doing announcements? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you ever wonder if God loves this church, the only evidence that I've found that he might not is that he didn't call John to my job. Because when I showed up and got to know John a little bit better and just saw how incredibly competent, how incredibly steady, uh, how much he loved people, how good he was at you know, organization and navigating all of the myriad demands that come with a position like his, I thought, why is he not the pastor of this church? So it is GE's gain uh, and our loss, but just the same, God bless John, be praying for him and his family at a time of transition. Uh, one more thing, I would encourage all of you who can to show up on Tuesday night for worship night. Um, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture is when God tells us that he himself is enthroned on the praises of his people. And if you remember, if you remember also that with God's presence comes fullness of joy. If you find yourself kind of tired, hurting, weary, if you find yourself feeling like one of the sheep who was kind of wandering, straying, injured from the passage that we just read, there is no better thing to do than to go and worship God encounter him enthroned, and find peace and joy in his presence. Uh, I could say a lot more about that. For the sake of time, I'll move on. We pray with me? Lord Jesus, we receive you today as our shepherd and as our teacher. Thank you, Lord, uh, that you do give gifts to your church for building us up so that we can all do the work of the ministry, but uh, today, Lord, we, we confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. And we see the danger of trying to shepherd your flock in our own strength and according to our own ways. So we ask that you come and be the shepherd. Take full advantage of my weakness. Receive all the glory from speaking your truth to us. Lord, say what you want said from your heart to mine to the people. Give us good ears and good hearts to receive what you're saying to the church. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Does anyone ever feel like we're living in the middle of a decade that you could define based on like the crises of leadership that we see around us? Um, I'm not, I don't just mean that sometimes we work for bosses who are difficult people or that 
sometimes, through no fault of their own, leadership screws up. I mean that when you look around, it just seems like a lot of times things aren't working the way they're supposed to, and when you try and trace the causes for the dysfunction back to some root cause, a lot of times it dead ends in an office in like the corner suite of your building. It's not just me. I mean, there are, there are some organizations that actually like track leadership profession, uh, competency professionally. They, they do surveys. They survey uh, the leaders themselves and employees and organizations. And they've been doing these sort of longitudinal surveys over the course of decades about how, how good actually is like business leadership in the United States. And I mean, if you track those surveys, what you find is that a decade ago, about 20% of companies both the leadership and the people who worked at those companies felt that they had pretty good leadership in their company. It felt that at the end of the day, the folks, uh, the folks who were making the big decisions and who were in charge of management were managing, managing to balance both the interests of the corporation and shareholders and the interest of employees and that everything was generally on a good track. But today, uh, that number's been halved. Right now, about 10% of companies feel confident that they're well-led which means that nine out of 10 companies, there's, folks have significant doubts about their ability to do their jobs, about whether the people in charge of them are interested in them and their well-being, about their long-term stability and survivability as an organization. That's kind of an alarming place to be in. And it's not just business. You could do the same sort of studies for uh, like confidence that Americans have in elected leadership. Those numbers are pretty dismal. Uh, it's not just that a lot of Americans feel that leadership is incompetent. More than six in 10 Americans flatly agrees with the following statement. Most politicians are corrupt. Not just incompetent, but flat out corrupt. And I, I think it's really, it's that kind of dynamic, that anxiety about our leadership that made a show like The Office just work in America in a way that maybe it wouldn't have worked a generation ago. Anyone else enjoy The Office? We, we feel sort of at the end of the day like we're a nation that are led by some variation of Michael Scott. <laughs> All the time, always. Every one of us at some point feels like we report to Michael Scott. And what Michael Scott demonstrates is a principle of management called the, quote, Pierce Principle. And the Pierce Principle is basically this, that at some point, if you have someone who's effective in their job, they're gonna be promoted to a point that reveals their incompetency. You can be an amazing salesperson, but as soon as you get promoted to management, you find out that actually you're a salesperson who's pretending to be a manager. Or, you know, you could be an amazing mayor, but as soon as you are elected governor, then the cracks start to show, or then the wheels start to wobble, and then things start to get a little bit shaky. This is the way things go. Like, there is a need in leadership for powerful offices, but powerful offices only work when they're held by people who are equally competent, equally virtuous, uh, equally wise, equally courageous to meet the demands of the office. This is one reason why a text like Ezekiel 34 is crucial for the church today. Because it shows in really kind of painful detail what happens when leadership in the church doesn't measure up to the standard and the requirements of the office. What happens when God's people aren't being led 
according to God's standards. And the great news of Ezekiel 34 is that even when leadership goes astray, God's throne is not shaken a little bit. Not even a little bit. At the end of the day, the church doesn't stand or fall based on the wisdom, the strength, the competency of the human leaders that have been appointed to hold ordained offices in the church. At the end of the day, God is the leader of the church. So even when leaders fall, God stands. And because God stands, the church of God will be fine. But that doesn't mean that leaders in the church don't have a really important role to play, and it also doesn't mean that they're not called and appointed by God to fulfill the office of leader, to fulfill the office of pastor, and to extend God's creative ruling and administrative power over his people. So whether it's the exiles in Babylon, or whether it's High Point Church in Babylon, we don't need to be concerned or afraid. But we do need to be wise and sober, and we do need to humbly submit ourselves to God and ask that he'll shepherd his flock. So, let's just walk through Ezekiel 34 for a second. This whole chapter hangs on one basic contrast between shepherds and the shepherd. So the first question is, who are these shepherds that God says he's against? I wouldn't want to be any of those people, although I have to say, like, as a pastor, reading this passage, it's always tough not to be afraid that, shoot, that's probably me at some level. These shepherds are basically the monarchy. Uh, they're, the, they're the kings and the princes of Israel and Judah. They've been ruling uh, God's people for centuries as if, well, basically, if, they, if we're going to stick with the shepherding metaphor, they look down at the sheep of the flock of Israel, and instead of seeing sheep entrusted to them by God, they see sweaters and lamb chops. And you can go back through the history of the kings of Israel, and you can see that this was just never going to go terribly well that uh, right from the outset, even when, when God is about to call Saul and then after that is about to call King David, God says to them, you've got to warn the people what these kings are going to be like. You've got to warn them. They're going to take their children into their service. They're going to tax them heavily. They're going to send them off to fight in wars. You, you, are you all actually sure you really want a king? And then the history of Israel kind of bears out God's warning. By the time you get through Saul and David and Solomon and you get to Rehoboam, the people are already done. They're already done. I mean, basically, they're done within two and a half or three generations. They decide, oh my gosh, this didn't go so well. So, when Ezekiel's prophesying, you have kings of Israel and Judah who are in exile with them. You have Jehoiakim and you have Zedekiah. They're out there in exile, and then the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel saying, I'm against you. How would you feel if you were Zedekiah and the last thing you saw were your children being killed and then your eyes were gouged out and you were dragged away into captivity? Or how would you feel if you were Jehoiakim and you'd probably ruled as king for about three months as a relatively young guy? And the word of the Lord comes, I'm against you. And you've been dragged off into exile for who knows how long. 
So those are the shepherds. On the other hand, there's the shepherd. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I'm willing to bet that you've heard Psalm 23 over and over and over again. The Lord is my I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. You can see a lot of the same themes in Psalm 23 that we just saw in Ezekiel 34. This is how God goes about leading his people, like a shepherd. And it should probably tell us something that God is very comfortable referring both to the people that he calls to lead his people and to himself, to refer to himself as a shepherd. The function is essentially the same, but one is God, one are human beings. So when we pray, oh, give ear, O oh, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, that's Psalm 80. One of the things that we're actually praying is that God will shepherd his flock through other shepherds who are supposed to do the same things that God does. So what's wrong with these human shepherds? Where did they fall short? And I think the key verse here is verse eight. They assumed that, the shepherd, or that they as shepherds were meant to be served by the flock instead of the other way around. So instead of searching for the flock and caring for the flock and keeping them controlled and in a safe place and making sure that none of the strays got too far away, they decided that a little bit of breakage was okay. They decided that as long as they were eating well, as long as they were comfortable, that the well-being of the flock could ebb and flow. And one of the results of this, of course, is that a larger and larger number of the flock starts to stray. I mean, there's a really telling phrase in here where it talks about how the strays start to wander on the high places. That phrase, high places, should probably stick in your ears, and that should sound a little bit familiar, because the high places are the place where Israel goes to, like, worship the bells and to commit idolatry that eventually ends up with them being sent into, into captivity in Babylon, right? So what God is saying is that on the one hand, all of those sheep are totally responsible for their own idolatry. If you've been following along in Ezekiel so far, it's clear. God will punish everybody for their own sin, but part of the special sin of Israel's leadership is that they permitted and didn't go seeking after idolaters they let them just kind of go and go their own way and worship, bow themselves down to the host of heaven, make their children pass through the fire to Moloch. And it was their responsibility to make sure that the people remembered who God was and who they were as God's people, but they didn't because they were comfortable, because they had all their needs met. And in their comfort, they forgot their responsibility and their love for the flock. I mean, even good kings, even the kings, when you read through the books of First and Second Kings, who come off as generally good, like Asa, rules for 41 years, does everything right, but he doesn't go and tear down the high places. God's leaders have a responsibility to make sure that people are worshiping God rightly. So how does God act? He sends them to exile along with the sheep because this is where the sheep-shepherd metaphor starts to break down. God is the shepherd properly. God is God in heaven and we're on earth, but the other shepherds forget that they are themselves members of the flock, which is why when you get towards the end of the passage, God talks about how he's gonna be judging between the fat and the, the strong and the sleek sheep and the weak and the feeble and the scraggly sheep. The point is that those shepherds are also still sheep. 
They're still members of the flock. They've got to keep their act together too, and they can't go around uh, you know, stuffing themselves full and keeping themselves comfortable because what they're doing when they're doing that is they're oppressing the other sheep around them. They're stepping in the streams of water where every sheep is supposed to go and drink, and it's not good enough for them just to drink the water. While they're in the stream, they go about stamping their hooves around to make it so muddy that the other sheep coming behind them can't drink, and so they're thirsty. So their very behavior is scattering the flock, because what happens if you're a thirsty sheep? Do you stick around and drink the muddy water, or do you wander and try to find some clear water? The behavior of the shepherds precipitated Israel's idolatry, scattering them, making them feel like they couldn't trust the society in which they lived. And if that king was supposed to be the anointed representative of God, well, the worse the kings behave, how do you start to feel about God? So, God rejects the shepherd, and his response is that he is going to come and pasture the flock himself. He is, like, Israel is not in jeopardy. Everything that's happening, even right now, exile, is the work of God on behalf of the sheep. He is going to go and gather up the stray sheep. When he finds the ones that are hurt, he's the one who's gonna go about binding up the wounds and carrying them back to safe pasture. And for all those sheep who didn't wander, he's gonna make sure that they get moved from pasture to pasture to pasture so that they still have enough to eat, so that they're well taken care of. And this is pretty amazing to me because at this point, Israel is in exile. Israel is there because they have been worshiping idols. They have. They've like crossed the threshold of divine judgment, but even now what we see is that in the midst of judgment, God is even working this judgment about for the mercy and the restoration of Israel. It's even exile and all the suffering that comes with it is ultimately for Israel's good. But God isn't just going to shepherd Israel on his own. He's not just going to like abolish the kingship. Instead he says, nope, The princes of Israel may have fallen flat right now, but I'm going to raise up a new king and a new covenant. And that new king and the new covenant is David. I have a little bit more to say about David later in the message, but for now, just take a step back and put yourself in Jehoiakim or Zedekiah's shoes. How would you feel if your boss called you into his office? Hey, hey Devin, or whoever, we need to have a talk. You've only been king for about three months. Uh, but we're ready to do your first performance review. I'm afraid we have to let you go because I'm sorry, but you're just not God. (laughs) How would you feel being held to that standard and measured against that standard? Is that even fair? Is that reasonable? I'm a human being, not God. Even David fell flat on his face. Just hang on to that question for a while. I want to come back to it, but before I do, I want to make a few points because without these first few points, how you, how you answer Zedekiah or Jehoiakim's predicament just doesn't make any sense. The first point, the, really the beating heart of this passage, and if you hear only one thing today, hear this, it's this. God loves herding sheep. God loves herding sheep, and that means that God loves you. Individually, whether you're in the middle of the flock, living well, or whether you're wandering on the heights, in total rebellion against him, God loves you. This is the great love that God lavished upon us. Some of God's great kindness and love to us, we see it every day and we don't even think about it. When Jesus is talking about the love of God in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, just look at the sun. 
God makes the sun come up and go down every day for every human being, regardless of whether they're righteous or regardless of whether they're wicked. God's love is manifest in it all the time. He's sending rain for the righteous and for the wicked. He loves them all and he's seeking them all, all the time. So there is a sense in, in which we, if we looked around, we could make a big list of the way that God is always loving all people all the time, always, because this is his nature. When John says God is love, he is right on the money. But there's an even more specific way in which God is love, in which he is loving all of us. You could look at a text like Romans 5, but before you turn there in their Bibles, just play out a little scenario like this. I mean, if you've been following the news at all this week, uh, you know that very recently a gunman broke into a synagogue in Texas to take hostages. Now, we live in an age where that is terrifyingly, horrifically, and just it grieves my heart at how common it is. And if you have any empathy, you can't help but put yourself in the situation of not just the rabbi, but the other congregants who are worshiping there in that synagogue, and you ask yourself, what would you do? Who would you protect if you thought that there was a strong chance that the people around you were about to be killed? And hypothetically, let's say you're sitting next to someone that you've been having an ongoing feud on social media with. Or maybe it's an employer who's been skimming from your paycheck. Or maybe it's an employee who's been dipping into your till. When that gunman breaks through the door, what do you do? Do you try to save your own skin? This is where a text like Romans 5 and what it says about the nature of God just blows my mind. Paul says that maybe there are some of us who if we really had our backs against the wall and saw that people around us were being threatened, would look for someone who deserved to be saved. We'd look for someone who deserved to live. We'd look for a righteous person. Maybe some of us would dare to die to save a righteous person's life, maybe. But maybe when it gets down to it, we'd all just be too petrified. You know, we'd go into fight or flight, our brains would go blank. We wouldn't even be thinking about the people around us. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is, the, this is like the heart of the shepherd in action. When the shooter comes through the door and you don't know what's gonna happen next, Jesus jumps on top of you and me and everyone else, no matter what we've done to him. He puts sinners first, above himself, because that's the nature of the good shepherd. John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the flock. It's really, really easy to believe that in abstract as a Christian. It's likely that if you've been attending church for most of your life, that everything I just said is something that you agree with or that you would say that you agree with. But this is where it gets a little tough. Do you believe that that's true about you if you're the sheep and he's the good shepherd? We spend a tremendous amount of time in America trying to make ourselves worthy of love and acceptance. Uh, we try to make ourselves physically beautiful. We try to educate ourselves so that people will need us and need our opinion. We plot and we push and we scheme to get ourselves in positions of power so that we'll be respected. All of these, all of these things are the things that we're dedicating so much of our lives to, and it's rooted in this fundamental insecurity that people actually don't like us, that people might not actually love us, that we'll never be worthy of love and acceptance. 
But this is the truth of the gospel that's every bit as true for you right now if you've been a Christian for 25 years as if you're not a Christian in this room right now, which is that God's great love seeks you and prioritizes you and sees you as inherently lovable, valuable, and important right now, no matter whether you're beautiful or educated or powerful, no matter even whether you've been good or bad. That's the heart of the shepherd. One of the great dangers, especially for those of us who've been Christians for a while, is to take a Christian doctrine like sanctification. Sanctification just meaning the process, the little by little, the step by step, where over time we grow in our faith so that we come to resemble Jesus more and more and more and more. Now, it's a great thing that as we grow in grace and godliness, we come to resemble Jesus more and more and more, but your growth does not make you more lovable. Your growth does not make you more valuable. Your growth does not mean that God will feel better about you one day than he feels about you right now. He sees you as his child, as the sheep of his pasture, and as the good shepherd, he prioritizes you right now, even if you're wandering on the heights committing idolatry. So this is the first challenge of Ezekiel 34. Just sit back and think to yourself, do I know that God loves me? Do I agree with it when, when Scripture says that he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for me? Am I okay with that? I talk to a lot of people who don't really believe it. Sometimes I struggle to believe it. But apart from resting in the confidence that you are God's sheep, that he loves and that he seeks, I think it'll be very, very hard to relate to him truly as he reveals himself in a text like Ezekiel 34 as the one who shepherds his people. All right, so how does God actually go about shepherding us in practice? The first quick answer is that he sends us Jesus, the Davidic shepherd king. I mean, if, if shepherd of Israel in the Old Testament is a metaphor that we usually used to talk about either God or the monarchy, it's really significant that all throughout the New Testament we see Jesus being presented as and calling himself the shepherd. And I don't have time to go real deep in this today, but I just want to mention a few things. Like, I don't really think you can understand the Gospel of Matthew without seeing Jesus as the shepherd king sent from God for you. Uh, even, even when you get to Matthew's genealogy. Anybody ever just like skip the genealogy at the beginning? Yeah. Um, so one of the things about Matthew's genealogy is that he repeats the name David a lot and he breaks down the genealogy like the succession of generations into groups of 14. That, that ring anybody bell, anybody's bells? Yeah. So one of the ways that, that Jewish minds at the time of Matthew would look for divine significance would be to count up the numerical value of words. So if you take the Hebrew alphabet and you assign every letter of value a number, and then you add them together, a lot of times they would find numerological significance in names. So you can see something like this in the, in the book of Revelation where they're talking about the man of lawlessness and how his number is 666. Yeah, you can do the same thing with David. Um, for those of you who don't know Hebrew, there are three letters in, in David's name, and when you add them together, their number is 14. So what Matthew is saying, screaming at you from the very beginning of the book of Matthew is that Jesus 
is the son of David, come back to be the Davidic shepherd king. So all, then you can trace that theme all throughout the book. In Matthew 2, 6, when the wise men are asking where Jesus is gonna be born, he's gonna be born in Bethlehem and he's gonna shepherd God's people. Matthew 9, he has compassion on the crowds because he sees them looking like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 26, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So Jesus, if he's the Davidic shepherd king, come back to shepherd us all, that's great, but where is he now? I mean, we don't see Jesus with us. So in Matthew 10, what he does is he sends his disciples to shepherd the sheep of the lost house of Israel. When Jesus right now is going about shepherding all of us, all of his people today, this is how he's doing it, through disciples that he's calling and made competent and sent out to shepherd his people. That means that some of us have to be open to being called and equipped by God to do the work. This means that just like in Ezekiel 34, where the shepherds are also part of the flock, right now, today in the church, shepherds are still part of the flock. And we have to be open to the fact that Jesus is using today hurting members of the flock to minister to hurting people. If we, again, we as Americans, we tend to really like the leaders that we look up to as like sort of semi-divine figures, as sort of invulnerable, or the folks who manage to, like, to weather terrible, terrible personal or financial or economic storms intact. It's one of the reasons why people who really like to invest look at a guy like Warren Buffett and just kind of stare in awe. Those are the sort of figures that we really, really like. But generally speaking, the shepherds of the church that Jesus calls are not that kind of figure. They're the kind of figure whose weakness, whose hurt, whose brokenness is just absolutely on display in front of us. And that's because that's the way Jesus was, because Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus was himself, insofar as he was human, a herding sheep in the midst of God's flock. I mean, how would you feel if you were Jesus in Mark 3 and your family came to lock you up because they thought you were insane? Or how would you feel if you were Paul, another shepherd of God's people, and you were in Ephesus, and things got so bad for you in Ephesus that you despaired of life and thought you were going to die because this was just the end. There was no way through. This is what Paul says about himself in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, but no, God spared my life and he comforted me, and this is why he comforted me. He gave me comfort in my affliction so that I would comfort other people in theirs. And so that the divine comfort that's extended to me is the same divine comfort that I can extend to them. So, when you're looking around at the shepherds that you see over you, and also at the shepherds that God is raising up among us all, because right now, in a church of this size, Jesus is raising up shepherds right now. Don't be put off by the woundedness, the hurt, the brokenness, the failures of the shepherds over you and of the emerging shepherds in our midst. And this is really, really important because right now in the church in America, we are facing a pastoral crisis. And it's almost the inversion of the crisis of Ezekiel 34. The problem in Ezekiel 34 is that the shepherds are running roughshod over the sheep. The problem in America today is that nearly 40% of pastors are so burned out that they are seriously considering leaving the ministry. 90% of people in America who at some point hold the office of pastor, will retire with a different job title outside of the church. 
If you are a pastor or a shepherd of some kind today and you find yourself so burdened, so exhausted, so crushed that you, don't, you really don't know how you can keep going on, remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 1. He felt the same way. He didn't think he could make it. It was only because of the divine comfort extended to him and the confidence that he gained from receiving divine comfort that helped him finish his course. So, if you are that shepherd, know that God is not expecting you to live up to his divine standard in your own power and strength. You can come to him for divine comfort and know that God will extend that same divine comfort to the hurting people that you minister to. At high point, Shepherding is the work of the whole congregation. Shepherding is the work of all the people of God. So how many of you are members of a small group? Yeah. I'm so thankful for the small group leaders of this church. I'm so thankful that I get to work with you. I see so much of like the divine shepherd at work in high point small groups. I see people who are concerned for the hurting and the lost and the broken that they, that they find right in front of them on a week to week basis. And I know that God is raising up more small group leaders who will be that kind of shepherd, who can shepherd five or six or seven or 10 people at a time. Um, So if you are interested in becoming one of those people, one of those shepherds, you feel like maybe God is leading you to step up and pastor his people, come talk to me after service. Or if you like, next week at 11 a.m. during the second service, We're gonna be back in the Micah Center. All of the small group leaders are invited. We're gonna talk about some small group related things. If you're a small group leader, please come. If you're not a small group leader but you're considering becoming one, also please come. We'd love to talk with you. But in order for small groups to function and extend Jesus' shepherding ministry, some of us do need to step up and do it. And in order to step up and do it, you do have to have some confidence that you're not just gonna end up like one of these shepherd kings that God rejects. And how can you know that? How can you really believe that? That if I step up and let myself function as a shepherd in the middle of God's flock that God loves and God feels so strongly about that if I screw up and mess with his people, he's gonna reject me and discipline me. I, I mean, why would you do that? Wouldn't it just be safer to sit back in your pew and say, yeah, thanks, we'll let someone else do that? Because that's kind of basically where I imagine Jehoiakim or Zedekiah would have found themselves, right? Like They're carted off into exile with God's people and maybe they don't think they did a perfect job, but could they really reasonably be expected to live like God and shepherd God's people like God does? This is where it's helpful just to remember the basic logic of Israel's kingship. It begins with one action, anointing. When Saul is called as the first of Israel's kings, Samuel says, when the oil is poured on your head, the spirit of God's gonna come upon you and you're gonna be changed into a new man. After the spirit of God departs from Saul and David is anointed king, the same thing happens. David and Saul become more than themselves while they remain themselves because the power of God is at work in them and through them. This is... This is the same logic that you basically find in a text like Ephesians, Ephesians 4 where Paul is describing the way that leadership in the church is supposed to work. Paul tells us that God gives us leadership as gifts from God to the church and he says that this grace is given to leaders, grace is the same word for gift, so that they'll equip the saints for the work of the ministry. 
In other words, it's grace. Like the people who are given to us to lead us are gifts from God, and the capacity to lead is also a gift from God. So the only thing that you need to know if you wonder if maybe God is calling you to take a more active leadership role in the church, the only thing you need to know is that God is calling and God is the one who's providing the power. This is the basic logic of Christian ordination. Um, Not everybody agrees on what happens during ordination, like during services of ordination or ceremonies and people lay your hands on folks and at one point they're a priest or a pastor, another point they're not. But essentially what ordination is, is the whole body of Christ around an individual looking at them and saying, the grace of God is at work in that person. We see it, we see the fruit of it, we see the evidence of it and we recognize it and we affirm it. So when someone taps you on the shoulder and says, I see God at work in you, I see the way that God is using you to help people, consider whether that might not be God raising you up to minister to hurting people, to bind up the broken, to seek the lost, to make sure that the people who are in the flock are being taught well from the word of God and pastored. Anybody want to just stick around for another hour so I can teach this whole text? Okay. If you only heard one thing today, because not all, let's face it, not all of us are called to be pastors. Not all of us are called to be teachers. Not all of us are called to be prophets or apostles. Jesus is all of those things at once, and thank God, because I need all of those people in my life. Thank God he is giving those people to us in the church today. But if you only heard one thing, remember this. The reason for all of that is not to like, produce more celebrity pastors who look cool on book covers. The reason he's doing all of that is because of his deep love for his flock. And that means his deep love for you as an individual, regardless of your state right now. It really does not matter if you were converted three weeks ago and then you relapse back into an old drug addiction yesterday. God's heart for you is not changed. He does not see you as a less worthy sheep right now than he did a few weeks ago when he called you. So whenever you see the good of pastoral ministry at work today in the church, whenever you see God at work doing something that only God can do for his people, then celebrate the fact that that's evidence that he loves you. Jesus hasn't left us. He's still at work today. Please join me in prayer. God, thank you that you are our shepherd king. Thank you that, Lord, when we wouldn't love the people around us, and sometimes when we wouldn't even love ourselves, you do love us, and you seek us, and you build us up. Where we're hurting, you tie us up that you're the one who knows the compass heading that takes us back to safe pasture. So give us grace to receive your love and give us grace to go forth when you send us out. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.